in Matthew uh, 18, and we're continuing our journey this morning through the parables. Uh, we're continuing this series, uh, teaching through the parables that Jesus taught to his first century followers. As we've looked at the first few of these, uh, we've largely seen Jesus interacting with the crowd. It's been the mob who sort of followed him around and 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 gathered around him. That was one of the marks of his ministry. The people just seemed to show up. They gravitated towards him. It was often those who were, who we would say were the marginalized. It would be the sick. It would be the needy. It'd be the broken and the hurting. It would be those who knew that they were wounded, who identified oftentimes as outcast, even in their own lives. And they were attracted to this message that he had for them. And so he's been teaching them. He, he's chosen this method to engage with those disciples. He's, he's teaching them in these parables. And we're told at various times that he does this for those who have ears, that they will be able to hear, and also for those who don't, that they, would, that they wouldn't be able to understand. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand why he would do that, but that is his method. And so what he's doing is he is constantly, he's just constantly redirecting their eyes. He is He's taking their eyes off of the present and, and pointing them towards something that is to come. He's, he's reorienting them uh, to something bigger. It's what we would call a kingdom view. And this isn't unfamiliar to us. We've prayed that petition many times in our life. You know, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Thy kingdom come, we're praying for the same, for the same thing to happen that Jesus is constantly teaching in the parables. We're, we're praying in that moment that the kingdoms of this world, that, and even the kingdoms of our own personal lives, our own personal little kingdoms, we're praying that they would fall away, that our own personal agendas, our, our own motives, our desires, we're praying that those would fall, and, and we're praying in that moment for something greater to come. And the parable today will continue to expand on that. It will add another another thread to sort of the kingdom tapestry that Jesus is weaving uh, for his people. So I'd invite you now to stand with me, uh, and we will tune our ears to hear, well, to hear the very word of God. This is Matthew chapter 18. We'll start in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this may not be an easy, an easy few moments here. Um, Lord, in fact, I pray that it wouldn't be. It hasn't been an easy week for me, reading through this over and over and over again and dealing with this in my own heart. Lord, I pray that you would be at work on us, that you would speak to us, that you would make us uncomfortable if that's what we need this morning, that you would shake our foundations a little bit, that you would remind us of who you are and of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would unstop our ears so that we can hear you. God, that you would awaken our souls this morning, that we might draw near to you and know you more. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't let anything here distract us from what you're trying to do. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we have said, many of the parables that we're going to be looking at throughout this entire series are are, are normally set with Jesus teaching a, a large group of people. He's there on the coastline, and it's so crowded he has to jump into a boat and, and teach from the boat as the people are on the shore. That, that's pretty typical of what we'll see, but this one's different. This one's different because what we're going to find here is, at least in this context, is a more intimate setting. He's there with his close disciples. It's set within, within the broader context of a, of a conversation about life in the kingdom, about true humility about prevailing temptations and about reconciliation w- between, between brothers. If you, if you look at all of chapter 18, that's what you'll see. There's several things that, that lead into this. And this parable comes out of a question. It comes out of a question that's rooted in those teachings. It, it's, and it's a reminder, Jesus doesn't just randomly start talking. He doesn't just walk up to him and go, hey, the kingdom of God is like. He actually waits for a question and he uses this moment, this opportune moment, to tell us something. And so Peter asked, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? No, no that's not part of the parable. Okay, that's, that's the story. That's, that's a genuine question. This is, this is history that, that he literally asked that question, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? But it's to that question that Jesus answers with a parable. Okay, Jesus had taught them about reconciliation in, in this chapter. He's taught about the order of things in terms of church discipline. And now Peter is effectively saying to him, Yeah, but where's the limit? I understand grace, I understand forgiveness, but how much does somebody really get? This is Peter's question. That's the heart of it. He even asks if, if he should forgive as many as seven times. Should I forgive somebody seven times if they, if they sin against me? And truthfully, that was more gracious in comparison to what the, uh, the, the teachers of that day would have been teaching. They, they would have told you, they would have looked at the prophet of Amos and said, uh, three times is the limit, uh, three times yes, four times no, that, it, that at three times you stop forgiving and you move on. You, you, you forget that person, you push them 
aside, I'm not sure if Amos was the inspiration for the three-strike rule in baseball, but, but it's, I guess it's possible that, he, that it was. Um, but that was the deal. It was three strikes, and that's it. Three times was the limit. And so what we see here is Peter, and even asking this question, he's actually doubling what the standard was and adding one. Okay, he's being gracious in that, at least in his mind. And we obviously don't know all the details of Peter's life. That The truth is that prior to, prior to his time with uh, Jesus, we know very, very little. And, and the fact of the matter is what we're given of his life is just a snippet. I mean, it's just a tiny glimpse of the life of this one. But we know that the world that he walked in, here, here's what we know. We know that the world that Peter walked in, that the, that the dirt that he put his feet on, that the people he interacted with, they had a lot in common with the world in which we find ourselves today. He was, he was daily faced with the same realities that we are, the realities of being sinned against, the reality of walking in pain, the reality of suffering, the, re, the reality of loss. He was acquainted with those things because he navigated the same treacherous waters of life that we do. And Jesus knew that too. And so he chose... He chooses this moment right now to teach this parable. He chose this moment in Peter's story, in the story of his disciples, to teach them what we're going to call true heart forgiveness. In response to Peter's inquiry, Jesus responds saying, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And most will agree that, that what that really translates as is, is 70 times seven. So not 77, but really saying 490 times. 490, you should forgive him, 490 times. And, and what Mark Ross, uh, he says is, is that not only should we forgive our brother every time he repents, but every, 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 every time. That's what Jesus is telling him. Every time. You forgive them every time. Therefore, he says, this is what leads into the parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so now we're into the parable. Now we're into the parable. He's saying it's because of this call in our lives as as children of God to true heart forgiveness that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is what it looks like to live as part of God's kingdom. So let's look at this parable a little closer. Our, Our first character that we meet here is the king. Okay, and the king is meeting with his servants. It's clear that it's clear that the king has been generous. Okay, he has extended some loans to to his subjects for whatever for whatever reason, and it's clear that those loans have been allowed to go on for a while. All right, and and now he's looking to to settle things. Okay, and and I think we can agree that that's a reasonable idea. He has he has made a loan. He has lent money to these folks, and now there's a debt to be paid, and so he's looking to to collect. The debt, and, and if, you, nothing, if you remember nothing else from this, is if you borrow money, you should pay that money back, right? This is, this is not earth-shattering new news for anyone. If you are given a loan, you pay back the debt. But in verse 24, we meet the second character. We're told that this, was, this one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you have a study Bible... Uh, you probably see where it says that, that a talent is worth roughly 20 years' wages for a laborer. So if you multiply that out, and I'll, and I'll spare you the temptation to do math during, during this time, we'll see that he owes about 200,000 years worth of wages to the king. 200,000 years worth. And, and so the point is that this is an impossible debt. 
That's the point that Jesus is making. The dollar figure really doesn't matter. The point is that it's impossible. He cannot pay it back. And so the king decides to sell this servant and his family uh, to pay it off. And then in verse 26, if you look at that, we see the servant's response. We're told that the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. All right, so let's just call this what it is here, all right? Uh, This is a ridiculous proposition that the servant has made to the king. It is a ridiculous proposition. It would take somewhere around 4,000 lifetimes. And 4,000 lifetimes of hard work for the same person in order to pay back this debt. It is impossible to do this, okay? And totally impossible. The servant is either... Here's what I would say. We're left with two options for this servant. He is either a liar, he's just a liar, he has no intention of repaying, or, and I actually think this is the better option, he doesn't fully comprehend the magnitude of the debt that he owes. He doesn't understand the weight of his own debt. But uh, the king has pity on him, right? He sees him on his knees, begging for patience, and the king, we're told, had pity on him. He forgave the debt. He canceled the debt. The king took out the big red stamp, slammed it on the top of the paper and said, canceled, canceled the debt. Whereas we will find in a a minute, everyone in the room was able to see. This wasn't happening in some back room. It wasn't happening in a secret meeting. This was out in front of everywhere where the king chose in that moment to cancel the debt of this servant. Everyone saw it happen. The master released him and forgave him the debt. Now look at what happens next. Here's where we meet the next character. Uh, One who is called in verse 28, one of his fellow servants. Okay, so it's an equal. This man is is an equal to the other servant. It's someone who occupies the same station, the same same status, and the same place in the kingdom. They are equal with one another. And we should notice there's a subtle difference here. I don't know if you picked up on it when we first read it, but the first servant, it says, was brought to the king. He was brought to the king. That's what it says in 24. That's a passive verb, okay? That would, to be brought is a passive activity. It means it's happening, but it's not happening by your own initiative or your own energy. It's, it's happening to you. You are brought somewhere. You don't bring yourself, okay? And in the second case, the first servant went out and he found, that's what it says, it says he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a debt. You see the difference there? When it was his debt, he didn't seek to reconcile it. He was passively brought to the king. But when it's the debt that someone owes him, well, that's different. Now he went out and actively found the man and brought him. He took the initiative in that case. And this debt, you should notice, is substantially less. It's about a hundred days worth of labor. That's that's the debt that he is owed. About a hundred days worth of labor. It's a debt that it's a debt that could be budgeted, right? That's a debt that is reasonable. It's a debt that could be paid back in a in a in a certain amount of time. You could come up with a plan, you could Dave Ramsey that thing, and, and before you know it, you would be you'd be set, right? Because you've got your piece of paper and you learn to live by your budget and pay off a couple of denarii a week, right? That's how that would work. The, the point is it's doable. This debt is doable. You can get 
that debt paid. And then the second service makes an identical plea. Did you notice that? He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. That's verse 29. And the man, the servant who had been forgiven this extraordinary, this impossible to repay debt, we're told that he coldly refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now look back at 31. In verse 31, Jesus says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Remember, they had been witnesses to this whole scene. They were there when the master canceled the debt. They were now there watching this servant refuse to to cancel the debt or to to even allow for payback, to, to throw the other servant into prison. It's hard to work in prison to pay off debt. He was effectively casting him into oblivion, saying, I'm sorry, there's no grace for you. They had seen this whole thing take place. They had heard the record of debt. They had seen the man fall on his knees and plea for forgiveness, pleading for patience to accomplish the impossible. They saw the king forgive the debt that could not be repaid. They were witnesses to this extravagantly gracious act of the king towards the servant. And now... Okay, now at this point, there are witnesses to the direct opposite. And it pained their souls. That's what it means to say they were greatly distressed. It means that they were saddened. It means that they were grieved. That they felt this negative sort of oppressing weight of pain in their hearts at the hypocrisy being demonstrated by this servant. It pained them to the point where they could not just sit there silently. And so they reported to the master. And and here's where we see a shift take place. The master, by the way, the word there is the same word that we would use for Lord. It's It's the exact same word. Summoned him back and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And, And then we're told this. We're told that in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until they should pay, until he should pay all his debt. Remember, those who were witnesses to the scene, they were, it, we were told they were greatly distressed, right? They were saddened by what they had seen. It, it, it hurt their hearts. The master has, has a different emotion. It says that he was angry. And I love the way that if you have a New American Standard Bible with you, you're reading this a little bit different. It says this, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Do not have the idea of a comfortable life when he's thrown into the prison. The torturers is a much more literal translation there. And here's how Jesus summarizes his teaching. He says in 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right, so here's where this passage stings. Now it's not talking about some random guy in a story, some servant who we'll never meet. It's not talking about a king who we'll never know. Jesus has now answered Peter's question with this. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is teaching them here about true, true heart forgiveness. Peter's question that led to this in verse 21 was very much focused on actions. He wanted to know how many times, 
Give me a number. Seven times? Does that sound good? Can we agree on seven? Can we just write that down? I'll forgive you seven times. Peter wanted to know what action he needed to take. But true heart forgiveness isn't so much about our actions as it is about our attitudes. You see, true heart forgiveness is really about the condition of our hearts. About the condition of my heart. It's about having a knowledge of the weight of our own sin and understanding the grace and the mercy that we have been shown in Christ. You see, an unforgiving Christian, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. It's a figure of speech that's a conjunction of two contradictory terms. An unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron because there's no such thing as an unforgiven Christian. An unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron because a refusal to forgive is the opposite of love. It's been said, I don't know who said it first, I don't know that anybody does, but that refusing to forgive or that, or that uh, holding on to resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? There's about 10,000 people on Google who get credit for saying that first, by the way, if you were curious. Here's what Jesus said. Here's how Jesus said it. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then in Micah 6, 8, the prophet said, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Right? That means that if you claim the name of Jesus, that if you claim Jesus as Lord, that he requires mercy of you. It's not a suggestion. It's not just a good idea. It's not a new habit to try and develop. It's a mandate. You see, in comparison to the tax collector of Luke 18 who beat his breast and cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, the unforgiving servant performs all of the outward. He gets, uh, he gets all of the outward right, all of the outward signs of repentance, but his behavior ultimately reveals, well, it ultimately reveals a lack of true heart change. Because he refuses, this one who has received mercy now refuses to extend mercy. His behavior exposes this lingering darkness in his heart. You see, an unforgiving servant is an oxymoron because forgiven people forgive people. We said earlier that there were really two options for the first servant, for the first one who was brought in to settle the account with the king. We said that he was, he was either a liar He was either just willing to say, bold-faced lie, I'll repay you and have no intention to repay, or, and again, I believe this might be the better option, he didn't truly truly comprehend the magnitude of his great debt. He didn't understand what 10,000 talents was worth. He didn't understand what the king was giving up in order to forgive him. And we can fall into this trap today. In fact, we see it in the church all the time. In our pride, in our own spiritual blindness, we can fail to recognize the true and impossible cost of our sin. You see, we can err in believing that we were easy to save because because we're pretty good. I mean, you like you probably. We can err in believing that we were easy to save because our debt was something like 100 denarii instead of 10,000 talents. Because we tend to think, again, 
Well, honestly, most of us think we're pretty awesome. This is the error that Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously labeled as cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. And then he goes on to say, and I love this, please. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace is easy because it doesn't require anything of us. I mean, an hour on Sunday, right? I mean, that's, that's cheap grace. It doesn't require us to do justice. Cheap grace does not require us to love mercy. Cheap grace does not require us to walk humbly with our God. Listen to me, I, I, I'm not standing here today telling you to be better at forgiving. I mean, that would be great, but that's really not what I'm, I'm asking of you. I'm not doing that any more than Jesus was doing that with Peter and the disciples. Peter asked about a behavior. Jesus told him a parable concerning the heart, concerning the inner man. Just like when we tell our kids that they need to apologize for something. I've only done that 20 times this week. Look, you need to tell them you're sorry. We're hoping that that doesn't land with the words, I'm sorry. But that they begin to understand the weight of what has been done that requires forgiveness. We don't want them to be empty words. We're praying that their sin would grieve their heart and that it would greatly distress them, that we would be broken over our sin instead of so concerned about the sin of others, and that they would turn, that they would turn in repentance to Christ. No, I'm not begging you to be better behaved. What I'm begging you to do is 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 to remember or perhaps to hear for the very first time that the good news of Jesus Christ is is that at the cross, he didn't just erase your sin. He didn't just make it vanish as if it never existed. No, at the cross, he paid your impossible debt. You see, he took your 10,000 talents of sin upon his shoulders, bearing it in his body on the cross to satisfy the requirement of divine justice. Jesus paid your penalty to settle your account. I'm going to beg you to hear that because that because that debt has been paid, because he has extended mercy to you, and because it is a glorious, costly truth that you can be justified only through faith in him, I'm going to beg you to receive the gift that he offers you. You see, this is the opposite of cheap grace. This is the most costly gift that you could ever hope to receive because, because it was a debt that you could never have hoped to repay. You could never have re- reconciled this on your own. And now in Christ, okay, now in Christ with my impossible to pay debt, paid on my behalf, I am now liberated. I am, I am free to forgive my brothers and I am set free to love my neighbors and I'm liberated from the fear of loss because in Christ I have gained an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled and that is unfading, one that is actually being kept in heaven for me now. You see, I can walk in newness of life. I can walk in joy because the burdens of this world do not compare to the riches of God in Christ. 
And we know, this is what 1 John 1.17 says. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, we spend so much time worried about the tragedies of this world that it diverts our eyes from the tragedy of our own hearts apart from Christ. We forget the great cost that my life deserved. Forgot that the wages of sin was not a bad afternoon, but death. And that Jesus paid that. And that leads us right to the table of the Lord. And that's because the Lord's table reminds us of the great sacrifice that was given for us. We're reminded that grace and forgiveness always come at a cost. We call it the free gift, and it absolutely is free to us. But it costs God everything. We're reminded that the spotless Lamb of God gave his body, that he shed his blood, not because we were so good that he had to have us, but because he loved us so much that he couldn't bear to see us lost to ourselves in our sin. And so we rest not in our ability, not in our own goodness, but in the grace of God in Christ who has forgiven my, he has forgiven your impossible debt, one that you could have never hoped to repay. We, above all things, should be a thankful people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive my weak understanding of my great sin. Would you forgive me for thinking that I'm pretty good. God, I pray that you wouldn't let us walk out of here today feeling anything but gratitude because you have paid our impossible debt. You have taken our 10,000 talents, our 200,000 years worth of labor, and you've paid it for us. You paid it for me. God, I pray that we would know that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.